Kuma Baptist Church, and that little girl's name is Maven Joy Taylor. Isn't that exciting, hey? Ben and Kristen's baby is here for the first time. So, praise God. Uh, let me pray, and there she is. <laughs> yeah, okay, back here, back here, back here. Okay, right. let, me, um, let me pray. Father, we do, we do thank you that in this moment we get to be here together to see each other face to face, from the oldest to the youngest, so needy of one another, and so needy of you now as we open your word. And so we pray for your grace by your Holy Spirit through your word to do the work which you've designed for us this morning. And so we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, John Viveki, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a philosopher, cognitive scientist, kind of university lecturer in America, not a Christian, but he's become well known online, uh, particularly in the kind of the podcast circles, for speaking about what he's called our present meaning crisis. We're in a meaning crisis, he says. Just recognizing, and, and many people are beginning to recognize that as the kind of the Western world, departs from its Christian kind of heritage and the profound shaping effect that that had on, on, on people who lived in the West, whether you're a Christian or not, as far as what we value, what we care about, what we think of as our purpose in the world. As we move kind of away from those foundations, we're struggling to find a kind of meaningful replacement, a satisfactory replacement for that kind of story that we had in the Christian story. Viveki points to some of the symptoms that he sees in the Western world of this meaning crisis. He, he talks about how more and more people are living by themselves, which can disconnect them from community and from family. That we turn to social media for community, and yet at the same time, the irony of it is that there's a direct correlation to the amount of time on social media looking for community and a sense of loneliness. The UK now um, appointed a minister for loneliness. We have a mental health crisis and social scientists kind of scratch their heads, particularly in a country like Australia that's so wealthy, so prosperous, that's known such peaceful times. Why are we struggling so much? A survey in the UK in 2019 said that 80% of people said their lives were meaningless. There's been a growth in overall cynicism, he says, about life. A sense of nihilism is growing and futility. Abandonment of trust in institutions. He, there's been what he calls a virtual exodus. That is, people are more and more leaving the real life of real people and physical world and preferring actually the online world of virtual reality. Gaming is going through the roof. People love to game. Uh, well, some people love to game. A lot of people actually love to game. And, and, and that gives people actually a sense in the kind of virtual world of maybe something that's missing in the, in the real world. And that is like achieving something. Like there's meaning in a game. There's purpose in a game. I can level up in a game. He points to the popularity of transcendent movies like superheroes as a desire for us to look for greater meaning. He talks about the ongoing prevalence of the zombie genre. That they are kind of, and maybe thought a little bit too much about zombies, but anyway, that they are a different kind of monster, aren't they? They are kind of like us, 
but a decaying us. They're like alive but dead. They kind of walk around in like groups of others, but they're by themselves, wandering around, desiring to consume always. There's been the growth of the mindfulness industry, increased experimenting with psychedelic drugs. We are looking for meaning. Our world is desperate for meaning. And politics, in very many ways, has replaced what religion maybe used to do. And so even in politics, hey, there's, there's a very religious vibe to politics in our day, isn't there? Right? There's a sense of there's, there's doctrines that you've got to believe. There's blasphemy if you speak the wrong things about the wrong people. Excommunication in the form of cancel culture. We have a meaning crisis. What is our purpose? How do we find out? We're not helped by the different messages that culture tells us about ourselves, like what it even means to be a person. Martin Lloyd-Jones was pointing this out back in, the 19, in 1970. He was in an interview um, with a well-known reporter, and he said this, that I criticize the modern view of man on two grounds, he said. One is that it makes too much of man, and second, it doesn't make enough of man. On the one sense, it, does, it, it, make, it doesn't make enough of man. That is, the world tells you man is a, an animal, just an absolute fluke of evolution. You can't speak about the meaning of a, a fish at the bottom of the ocean any more than you can speak about our ultimate kind of intrinsic meaning. What are we talking about? There's no ultimate kind of transcendent meaning. We just, we live and then death comes to us all, right? It all ends. And then what? Whatever. doesn't really matter. We're just animals, flukes, lucky, but it's all evolution, right? And the universe doesn't feel like it owes us anything, right? You might have just had the best day of your life. You got a promotion and you met the man or woman of your dreams and then you walked out and got hit by a car. What's the point? Where's the meaning? But at the same time, while we don't make enough of man, we also make too much. Because at the same time, you're just an animal and you're a fluke of evolution and there's no real ultimate meaning. At the same time, you are everything that you need. And you are. Like, the love of yourself is the ultimate goal. And you actually design your own meaning in this world. And the best way to live your life is to look more and more inward at how awesome you are. Forget about God, forget about community, forget about country as kind of forming meaning. No, the ultimate success is really just you being you. Way to go. So, you're a meaningless animal. And now go and create your own meaning. The Australian historian um, Sarah Irving Stonebreaker summarized it like this. It says, of course we are anxious. We're basically cast loose into the world and told to invent ourselves. So along comes 1 Thessalonians. Um, and the tagline we have for this series is, has been living holy lives with future hope. And holy lives with future hope is, is trying to pull together two very connected but big themes in the book of Thessalonians. That is that there is a future hope that we are looking towards. That the Christian actually has an end. We have a goal. We are pilgrims on our way somewhere. We have a destination. That destination is all to do with the Lord Jesus and the day that he will one day return, and everything that means for every single person, but our whole world and the recreation of all things. There's our future hope, but the other is our holy lives, living holy lives in light of future hope. 
like with future hope. Because the reality is that because we have that future hope, that we believe that that day is coming, it affects everything about how we live in this life. That we actually become to live holy, distinct, different, like noticeably different lives because we are headed here compared to the person who's not headed there or doesn't believe they're headed there. Makes a huge difference. Martin Luther once said this, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. We often live in light of some future day, don't we? Helps us get through a present day. And it could just be the, you know, the weekend. It's like, this Wednesday is tough, but the weekend, I can think about that. And that helps me get through Wednesday. Maybe we need more than that. And so we can look forward to a holiday. It's like, man, these weeks are tough. But I can put up with this jerk at work. And I can do it because one day in you know, a few weeks, I'll be on a beach. I can do it. There's a, in light of the future day coming, my future hope, I can live today. Maybe upcoming retirement gets you through the last few years of of work. It's like, well, there's a day coming and I will not be turning up here ever again. The more significant the future day, of course, the more significant impact it has on the preceding days that lead up to it. Uh, We often call weddings the big day, you know, it's the big day. When's the big day, you know? Uh, How long till the big day comes? It is a big day. And you're like, the next day, like, that was a big day. We were right all along. But it's a big day. Now, for the couple, the reality of that big day impacts a lot of days in the lead-up, doesn't it? Like almost everything about your life. It's like, can we buy that? No, we cannot buy that. We are saving for a wedding and a ring and a honeymoon. We cannot afford that kind of thing. Can we eat that? No, we need to fit into that the, the suit and the dress, we can't eat, eat like that. Can we, do we have time to do that? We do not have time to do that. We need to plan the wedding and we need to make... What was the word, babe? Bonbonieries. There we go. Is that the word? Bonbonieries. My bad. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. We we don't have time for that. Well, brothers and sisters, we all have a day that's coming. It's not unlike a wedding, actually, where we will be united to the Lord Jesus Christ and we will live with Him in the place that He has prepared for us forever. That day is coming, the day of his appearing, the day of his coming, the day of his revealing. And that day affects everything about today. That affects everything about how you live, how you think about spending your money, how you think about spending your time, your generosity, your priorities, your work, your family, your children, your parents. There's nothing that's untouched by the reality that we believe in that day. And in many ways, I think 1 Thessalonians exists almost to make us more heavenly-minded. And there's that old saying, and I don't know if people keep saying it, but people used to say, you know, the the great fear of like, oh, that person, he's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that say? So heavenly-minded of no earthly good. And I'll just be honest, no one comes to my mind. Like in my life, people I've met, I can't think of anyone I know, maybe you've met them, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. I have met many, including myself, that are so earthly-minded, I'm of not much heavenly good regularly, right? 2 Timothy 4.10 says this, speaks about one person and says, For Demas, 
Paul writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Why did he desert Paul? He fell in love with the present world. His mind was on earthly things, and so he lived in light of earthly things. But the whole point of Thessalonians is to say, hey, there are heavenly things. Live our lives in distinct way because of that day. How often do you think about the return of Jesus? How often do you think about the second coming? Right, Because we, we naturally just think about the things that we think are like really important or that gets us excited or they have relevance to our lives. So, how often do we think about Jesus coming back? His return. It's amazing how little maybe it is on our mind and it's amazing to contrast with our, how on the mind it is in the New Testament and all the writers. I won't I'll just quote a few. Here's some examples. Like, we could do many, many more. But the Apostle Peter writes to suffering churches. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your mind fully there. Or Paul wrote to Titus. Titus 2.13. He says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or he wrote to Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also, hear this, to all who have loved His coming. Do you see how he defines those who will be awarded on that day? It is those who have loved his coming. They have looked forward to his coming. They have anticipated eagerly his coming. That's Christians. You just define Christians like that. They are the ones who love his coming. The Apostle John wrote, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right, and so then we come to 1 Thessalonians and, and really 2 Thessalonians and the, the return of Jesus is just a major, major theme. And we were only one, well, we're at the end of chapter 2, but chapter 1 has already been speaking and under, undergirding much of what Paul's been saying with the, the, the coming of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, he spoke about how encouraged he is by there, this church's steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that steadfastness of hope in him includes his, his return. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.10. You turn to God, he says, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's what you're doing. You turn from idols to what? Well, you turn to just start waiting. Well, now I'm waiting. But who, what am I waiting for? For his son from heaven. And so here we are in chapter 2 of our, in our passage, and Paul asks a question. It's in verse 19, and it becomes the foundation for everything he says in the two verses before it in our passage this morning. He asks a question, and it's the reason why you can understand anything of the first two verses, why he lives the way he lives. So the verse 19 has the question. Look at it with me. It says this, Paul asks, For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. What is it? Don't look ahead. What is it? 
Ask it again. Now think about it, what it is for you. Think about it. What is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? So it's setting our sights on that day. And it's saying, just go there for a second because you're headed to that day. What will it be? What will be your hope, your joy, and your crown of boasting? Think about it. What comes to mind? What will that, how that, will that day go for you as you stand before the Lord Jesus and you declare to him, what is your hope, your joy, your crown of boasting? In our passage, the answer to that question is the reason why Paul says what he says in verses 17 to 18. Like that's, the, that's the reason why he begins verse the question with the word for, because all of this is true. I live like this. I have these values and this meaning to my life because what is my joy? What is my hope? What is my crown of boasting on the day when we see our Lord Jesus? Now, I just wonder how you would answer that. How would the modern person answer that? You go, well, what, on that day, what would, what would it be? Just off the top of your head, what would it be? Like, I think this is the modern person just immediately turns so inward, don't we? We're like, I, I just can't think of anything but me, you know? Like, I mean, my joy, my hope, my, like the, the best thing I can ever do. Like we are, we are catechized, we are taught this in our culture ad nauseum. You just watch any children movie and they will tell you the best thing you could ever do is be you and, and find you and have your own, you're everything that you could possibly ever need. And the best thing you can do for meaning your life is to fall more and more desperately in love with yourself. Right, I listened to a, I uh, read a blog this week and I wasn't going to mention it, but here it is. And it was, <laughs> don't you, I read it so you don't have to. It was 23 ways to love yourself in 2023. And the person might stand before the Lord and go, here I am. And the world would applaud. he go, that is so healthy. That is the healthiest version you could be of yourself. Well, maybe you wouldn't say that. But then imagine now, thought, thought experiment, you have to present to the Lord right now your, your actual life. Not just aspirationally, but what are the priorities the things you're giving your life to, the things you care about most, the things that are making your life meaningful to you. And those are the things that you have to present to the Lord on that day. What is it? How does it go? What is your actual lived hope, joy, crown of boasting? What would that look like? Um, John Piper has this, you know, famous sermon where he speaks about a retired couple who um, retired off to um, Florida, and, and collected shells for the, la the last couple of decades. Of the, he, wrote, he read about it in Reader's Digest. And, um, and that's what they did. They collected shells. And he imagines that day. They, How did you spend the last couple of decades of your life? Here, Lord, my shell collection. How would, what would you do? Here, Lord, my video games. Here, Lord. All the TV series that I watched on Netflix, here they are, Lord. Here it is, Lord, my clean house. I didn't have anyone come over. <laughs> we kept that so clean. Here it is, Lord. Did you see? It's given me great joy. It's given me great hope for this day. My career. Have you seen, Lord, my bank balance? I gave away nothing. 
and it has increased. Here's my Instagram. Paul gives his answer. He says, Is it not you? For you are my glory and joy. It's you, says to a church. It's you. You're the ones I've given my life for. It's you're the ones I've prioritized. It's your, you, for this, for this mission. And we'll come back and look at that verse a bit closer later, but just to get that logic really clear in our minds, Paul has an answer to that question, and it's this group of Christians, these, this church. And that makes sense of then verses 17 to 18. So let's go there now. Verse 17 begins, he says this, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. So you'll just notice that these verses really do just pile on affectionate words after affectionate words after affectionate words, right? And Paul has already used some very affectionate words for this church. He loved this church. So back then, chapter 2, verse 8, it said this, Paul writes, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Well, that's how he spent his time with them. But now he wants to say what it was like to leave them. And when he describes what it was like to leave them, he says, we were torn away from you, brothers. So Acts 17, remember, tells the story about Paul and he came into Thessalonica and he only really got to preach for three Sabbaths in a row. People began to believe, but then a mob, an angry mob, whipped up and they were like, let's get this guy. And they tried to find Paul and Silas, couldn't find Paul and Silas, went after the people who were caring for and welcoming Paul and Silas and grabbed them and took them before the courts. They were warned not to do it ever again, you know, that kind of thing, giving them a strong warning so that doesn't happen. And they come back out of that and they tell Paul and Silas, hey, you're going to have to go. And so they flee by nighttime, under nightfall. And when Paul describes that, he says, we were torn away from you, brothers. We were torn away. It could be, and commentators mostly think, that there were probably opponents in the church, amongst the people in Thessalonica, and they were kind of spreading ideas about Paul, suspicion about Paul. You know, that's why Paul's had to spend a bunch of time already in chapter, in chapter 2 and chapter 1, like defending his ministry, saying, this is what my ministry was like. Don't let people lie to you about what, what motivated us and what we were like amongst you. You remember, we were there. Right? And one of the lies that people might have been saying was, that Paul, man, he, like, he, just, he, just, he just left you. Right? A bit of suffering came and he got out of here. He didn't actually care about you. He got out of here and he has not come back. He's forgotten about you. And Paul says, we were torn away from you. The word he uses is actually ap orphan it's a my. Ap orphan it's a my. We get the word orphan. Paul uses the word for what you would use for children being separated from their parents for what it was like for him to leave that church. Mason. John Chrysostom, um, one of the early church fathers, commented on this. He says, He did not say separated from you, nor torn from you, nor left behind, but orphaned from you. Paul sought for a word that might sufficiently show the pain of his soul. It's like, I did not want to leave. I was made to leave. Man, it's hard to be separated from people you love, hey? 
And I know there's like plenty of people even in our church who have immigrated from another country overseas. And, and, and I've heard stories like, like that's a really hard thing to leave behind family, to leave behind friends, and you come to another country and what, that, what parting is like, it's so hard. Um, even when you've chosen to do it, that's really, really hard. Like there's a tearing within you from people that you love. I remember when I was moving um, down to Melbourne, it was the night before, we were going to get in the car, we were going to drive to Melbourne and, and to, to, to stay for, well, to, it ended up being 11 years. And, and I remember the night before, sitting in the lounge room with my parents, in my parents' lounge room, and just at one stage looking across the room and seeing my dad, and he was looking at me, and he was just tears coming down his face. I was 23. And, and so I just got, you know, I didn't see him cry very often, and, and I began to cry. It was just like, this is so hard, because I'm going to miss my dad. And I did miss my dad. And, and I was planning to go. And Paul talks about leaving this church, which he was only there for a pretty brief time. And he says, man, I was, I was torn away from you. I did not want to go. So in just in these little chapters, a couple chapters that we've seen so far, notice how Paul's described him already as their mother, taking care of infant children. He's talked about being their father, exhorting them to live lives worthy of God. Now he's talking as though he's an orphan child from them. And then even in that same verse, he says, brothers. There's so much affection, isn't there? And so then he says, he says, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. So it hadn't been long. But in person, notice he says, not in heart. Right? The separation was physical, but it wasn't relational. It wasn't like for Paul, it wasn't out of sight, out of mind. Like, okay, I'm just going to have to move on. And, and I don't even think about them anymore. That's, I mean, that's a tough thing to... To, to process anyway, isn't it? Maybe you've experienced that where you've been very close with someone or very close with a group of people, and, and we, but when kind of circumstances made you leave and, and you just weren't followed up or you weren't cared for or anything like that, and you're like, oh, okay. Well, that wasn't as like significant as I thought it was, right? That wasn't as meaningful as I thought it was because out of sight, kind of out of mind. I've experienced that. To my shame, I'm sure I've done that. But that's painful. But Paul says, nah, we are still connected, not physically, but you're in my heart, and they will never tear us apart. I can imagine him saying. Well, then he writes, we endeavored, listen to this verse, <laughs> we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. You see the way he's saying it? And say, man, we missed you and I would have liked to have seen you again. Now we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire. So we endeavored, the, the Greek word is spudazo. It means kind of zeal, effort, diligence. And we tried so hard to see your face again. Then he says, the more eagerly. Right, which is kind of like an amplifying type word. It means like, like abundantly. That's, that's what it was like. Right, we endeavored abundantly that we would see you again. And then he adds, with great desire. Well, the NIV has intense longing. And the Greek word is epithumia. It's actually usually translated as lust. 
or covetousness. So he's just drawing on the strongest language he can find. That word's usually used negatively. Here it's positively. And it's just the, 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 the kind of pinnacle of zeal and passion that he would love to see them again. That's amazing. Like if you just read those, those verses, you're like, okay, so you're like eager with great desire, all of this. Man, what are you wanting to do? And then you read, I want to see you face to face. You might go, is that it? So you have all of that to just see them face to face? That's their faces? You don't have grander plans than that? You don't have like a vision for this, this joint? You just want to see them? Now, it's true, and you might be thinking this, Paul didn't know about online church. That's true. He did not know about online church, right? He did, didn't know that actually you don't need to see people at all. You can actually do church and you can stay at home in your pajamas. And, and it's, it's, it's the same thing, Paul. You know, you just get home and you, get, you, do, you don't even get, really need to get out of bed. If you've got a TV in your room, that's excellent. That's, it's called online church, Paul, okay? And so you stay in your pajamas and you watch the thing. You don't actually have to see anybody's face. You see the people on the stage's face, but you don't actually have to see other people's faces, right? And that's, I mean, it's the, Paul, it's the same thing. So he didn't know about that. But if he did, not to put words in Paul's mouth, but I think he would hate it. And I think he'd probably write a letter. <laughs> and it wouldn't be like 1 Thessalonians, it would be more like Galatians. <laughs> it would be like, you are so quickly departing from what it means to be a church. Honestly. You'd say, you don't want to see each other? Like, you don't want to see each other's face-to-face, your brothers and sisters in Christ? I saw a while back on the news about church when um, kind of the metaverse came out and churches started to do metaverse church, right? Put your kind of goggles on and go to church in the metaverse. And and they were literally baptizing, what do you call those things? Avatars. They were baptizing avatars. You know, come down the front and you could do it with your things and go down and you could get baptized. How paper thin is our doctrine of church in our day? That you could even think that that was possible. It's part of why actually we don't, um, as a church, we don't live stream our services. I don't know if you remember um, a few years ago, there was this thing called COVID. I don't know if you remember that. It was a, it was a while ago. You've probably forgot it was like a bad dream. But that, that actually, <laughs> that was a real thing. That actually happened. But we didn't get to see each other's face to face for a while. That was hard. That was actually really, really hard. Right? We, and we did some things online, but one thing we did try to not do is call it online church. But there's stuff online, but do not mistake, we are not doing church. This is not church. Hopefully it's helpful. This is not church. And it's actually okay to sit in the sadness of, like what Paul is describing here, I want to see your face again. I would, I'm longing for that day. It's okay to feel that. And not to pretend like basically the same. How good is this? That's not good. I want to see your face to face. I want to be with my brothers and sisters. How else am I going to do the Christian life? How else am I going to obey so many of the commands that I find in the Bible? Um, Christians, I think, have an awesome opportunity in the future to kind of stand out in a culture that's kind of veering more and more online. And we will get to be, I think, the physical people. If you like, 
the committed to like real, tangible life on life, and that the world, after it's kind of found the emptiness of online and VR, will go, who's doing real life? And that might be an opportunity for the church to go, hey, we've been doing that. We did not fall into that. We did not fall into that. I have hope for that. I have hope for that. Part of my hope for that is that I saw how many people were going from Brisbane to Sydney this last weekend, right? Because they wanted to see something live. Taylor Swift. We paid good money. Why? I mean, you can watch the DVD, right? I'm sure it's going to come out on DVD. But live. There's my confidence in the future of mankind. Paul says, I want to see you face to face. Verse 18, he says, because we wanted to come to you. It's really stronger than wanted. It's willed, fellow. A willed to come to you. Then he says it's personal. He doesn't go from the kind of general we. He says, no, no, I, actually. I, Paul, again and again. Like, I didn't just try to come to you one time. I was like, oh, it's not going to happen. Oh, move on. So, no, I tried again and again and again. I did not give up. And then you wonder, well, if that's all true, Paul, why didn't you go to them? You were so eager and you were trying so hard, right? Why didn't you go? He tells us. But Satan hindered us. You think about that? Paul says, I, I want to see your faces again. I want to see you face to face. And Satan goes, oh no. We're going to have to hinder that. We cannot have that. Does that make sense to you? Because you might get, uh, like, <laughs> like, first thing, you're thinking, really? Is that such a big deal? Satan's going to get involved? Oh no, we do not want your faces to see each other. But you might think, like, Satan, there are maybe bigger things going on. There's probably some big conferences happening or whatever, you know, like some bigger kind of more spectacular things happening, not the ordinary things of Christians seeing one another. Why are you involved in not letting, why are you interfering in just Paul seeing these people face to face? Is it possible that something we take so for granted and think probably pretty little of, Satan realizes what's at stake as Christians come together and see one another? Satan's purpose in the world, if you want to put it in big picture, I think you could summarize it like this. He wants to oppose the work of God in the world. He wants to oppose the people of God. How will he do that? What are the best ways for that to do that? For, to, to do that? When if you think about it like that, it's probably like, yeah, that's probably one of the best things to do. Don't let them see each other. Because when they see each other, they're going to start loving each other. They're going to start caring for each other. They're going to actually start like doing all the things that the New Testament describes we are meant to do to the one another, you know, the one another commands. How else are you going to do them if you don't see someone face to face? Forgive one another. When does that happen? It happens face to face. Can't help. happen otherwise. Encourage one another face to face. Bear one another's burdens. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Confess your sins to one another. Help the weak. All of this. You just go on and on and on. When does it happen? It has to be face-to-face for it to be real. And Satan hates it. He hates all of that. Much better for the Thessalonians to begin to suspect Paul doesn't care. Paul's not interested. Paul's forgotten about us. He's not even making an attempt to come back and see us. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul says, you know, the reason I haven't come back to you is not, it's not for, from want of trying, not for want of wanting. It was, it was Satan himself who's been at work. Um, you know, what that looked like, I'm not sure. You know, scholar, you can read up on that. That can be your homework. You read up on all the different theories of how that worked and why, the ways in which Satan was working. I'm less interested in, 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 in the what and why. Why did he do that? Why did he care so much about Christians seeing one another and the impact of that? It's a good reminder, I think, of just, just recognizing Satan hates this. Like what's happening right now? He hates this. He hates this. He would rather you have done anything else this morning. And you had a lot of options. You could have done, I mean, this is the goal code. You could have chosen so many different things to do this morning. What are we doing here? Well, there's so many good reasons, and you did choose the best thing. But Satan would hate this. My guess is he has far less fear of actually like big conferences than he has of ordinary church services. That Satan fears less the momentary kind of enthusiasm of a mountain high experience, which is there's a place for not denigrating that. I just think that's probably not as fearful for the work of Satan as the ordinary coming to church, seeing one another, encouraging one another, feeding on the Word of God. So then we come back to our question of verse 19. So we've described all of that, which is pretty amazing. Then verse 19, the grounds for everything we've just read, for or because, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. At first, when you read that, you might go, oh, that, that sounds a bit strange. Like you're talking about People, like they're your hope and your joy and your crown of boasting. Like, shouldn't that be, actually be the Lord Jesus? Shouldn't that be God himself that has that kind of role in your life? Well, the two things are probably, I don't think, are that distinct, are they? Because Jesus himself identifies himself with the church, doesn't he? Well, Paul experienced that when on the road to Damascus and, and Jesus said, you, you, you know, who are you? Uh, Paul says, who are you? Then Saul, and Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Jesus himself died for his church. He loves his church. And Jesus wants the church to be presented to him on that day in a particular way. So think about Ephesians 5.27 where he says, that he might, this is the Lord Jesus, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see, Jesus wants the church presented to him that way. Paul wants this church presented to the Lord Jesus that way. And so the two things come together. Paul is a means by which Jesus is preparing the church for that day. And so Paul gets to say to bring, bring before the Lord Jesus that this Thessalonian church and say, here, I, I live my life right. But this is evidence that I, I, my ministry was faithful. It was God ordained. Look at them. Look at this church. So he says, they are his hope first of the day of Jesus coming. Speaking about his confidence. He's not spent his life in vain. They are evidence of that. 
despite what the opponents might be saying about Paul, he will be vindicated on that day as he stands before the Lord Jesus and here, are, here they are, the Thessalonian church where he ministered. They are also his joy, it says. Here they, you are my joy before the Lord Je- Jesus at his coming. So when he stands before the Lord Jesus on that day and he has the saints with him, how does he describe that emotionally? Joy. That's just going to be the best. You will not be able to wipe the smile off Paul's face that day because he's made it. There he is before the Lord and here's his brothers and sisters and he has spent his life encouraging them, cheering them on, exhorting, correcting and here we are. Man, we sing about this in um, the song we sing, Almost Home, which we're going to sing later. This journey ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. What song and you will sing around that happy throne. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. Like it says, it's a happy throne. Because that will be a very happy day. When I just imagine us, we're standing together before the Lord Jesus. And that would just be a happy, happy day. The joy of that day actually becomes the last verse of some of our favorite songs, right? Doesn't it? You know, most, most of the best songs, they kind of point us towards that day. We've already done one. How great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. I love the hymn, my Jesus, I love thee. Where it goes, in mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. One more, it is well. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It'll be an unspeakable joy that day. Like nothing I think we've ever known. And part of it will be because we are standing with our brothers and sisters. We have helped along the way. Paul says, they're my hope, joy, and he says crown of boasting. Now, crown, the word there, there's a couple different words for crown in, in, the, in the Greek. One is for kings, but one's the kind of crown, the kind of wreath that, uh, that uh, you know, an Olympian might wear, you know, a winner of an athletic activity, and you put that on your head. Paul uses the second. He says, one day, that's going to be the day, the crowning achievement. Like, I, I get to that, that day, and we're standing before the Lord Jesus, and, and I will, in a sense, put you on my head. You. Christians will be like my crown of glory. He will boast in them. He will say, I have fought the good fight, I think. I have, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He will boast in them because there will be nothing to be ashamed of in them. And because, because of people like them, he is sure that he will be able to hear those words that he longs to hear from the Lord Jesus. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. It's a precious thought. Because Paul is a pastor, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. And to think the potential of that day, to stand with you all, my brothers and sisters, and in a sense go, look at them, Lord. Look at this. 
thank you. Thank you for this church. He says, for you are my glory and joy. So just wrap up now. We'll go back to that first question. Verse 19. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What is it? So I think our natural instincts is to just really go the wrong way. We'll begin to think of ourselves. I am my joy, my crown, and my boasting, you know, all these things. Or we think big. Okay, I need to achieve something massive, you know. If I'm going to, like, have hope and joy on that day, the Lord's going to look for some massive achievement in my life. Like, I started that thing, and I, I led this many people, and I had this much influence and all of this. But when Paul thinks about it, what does he do? He thinks of others. And he thinks of very ordinary things like seeing them again, ministering to them, giving to them both the gospel and his life. And that, I think, is the essence of a meaningful life. In a meaning kind of starved world, here it is. It doesn't need to be something that's super spectacular. It doesn't need to be recognized by the world. But I'll tell you what will give you great meaning in your life, faithfully helping others on our march towards that day. Pilgrims together. Theologian um, Don Carson, he wrote a book in honor of his father, Tom Carson. And it was called, I love this, the name of the book was called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. How good is that? And on the last page, it's really moving last page. I'm just going to read selected parts of it. It says this, Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was, never a far, he was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not very good at putting people down, except on prayer lists. When he died... There were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on the television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. But because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. When um, Don Carson, who's writing that book about his dad's assistant, um, finished typing up the journals of Don's father to give to him, sent him the digital file to Don, and he wrote this in the email, and this is what he said. He said, you know, I used to aspire to be the next Henry Martin. It's a Bible translator, missionary, missionary to Muslims in, in India and Persia. He says, I used to aspire to be the next Henry Martin. However, after reading your dad's diaries, the Lord has given me a heart given my heart a far loftier goal, simply to be faithful. 
I know we as men are but dust, but what dust the man I read about in these diaries was. There are lots of people in our church, I think, like that. They're so eager to see each other's face-to-face. They ask people how they're doing, and they actually, they really mean it. There are people in our church, and you go to them when you have deep sorrows, or you just need wisdom. They're available to you. There are people in here who, you go to them when your marriage might need help, or you're struggling with sin. They're people, they're the kind of people, they have people over for dinner. They shout people lunch. They offer a kind word, sometimes a word of rebuke. They listen more than they speak. They serve on teams in the church and they're not noticed. Why? They're just doing things so that others don't have to do them. And I could go on and on and on. Simple acts, faithful acts, helping one another make it to that day. It's greatness. What hope do you have to be vindicated on that day of having had a life well spent? What will it be? What joy will you have in seeing others you have helped along the way? What crown of boasting will you be wearing? How sad it would be to stand alone on that day. Do you think? To stand by yourself again. Because I, I, you know, because I left the church, you know, and I didn't think I really needed the church. I could follow the Lord Jesus, but I was going to do it by myself. I didn't need that kind of stuff. I didn't need those people. So I just got to make it by myself. I actually get closer to the Lord when, when I'm not around those people. Or, no, I was in church. I just didn't really give myself to the other people, you know. I didn't like, I can think of people that I actually helped along the way. I did a bit of complaining though. <laughs> and when things weren't the way I liked it, I really frustrated. But if you, like, if you, if you, you know, if you say, did, did you love them? I don't know. Like, I mean, I would leave if they were annoying, <laughs> you know. Um, let's live in light of that day by helping each other make it to that day. Michael Horton, I'm nearly done. Michael Horton had a great, has a great book and it's called Ordinary. He, he writes this, he says, CNN will not be showing up at a church that is simply trusting God to do extraordinary things through His ordinary means of grace delivered by ordinary servants. But God will, week after week. These means of grace and the ordinary fellowship of the saints that nurtures and guides us throughout our life may seem frail, but they are jars that carry a rich treasure, Christ with all his saving benefits. So I just leave you with the gospel. Because how are you going to live like that? How are we going to die to the, just the worldliness of what greatness and meaningfulness need is and actually come into this? It's only through the cross. It's only through I, have, I was a sinner and I was saved by the Lord Jesus who came and died and forgave me for all my sins and he has made me his child and I am an heir with Christ forever. forever. I have a, a, a place in heaven waiting for me, endless riches, endless joy. That's coming today, this, this week, this day, in this life. I'm just going to live and do be as faithful as I can and where I can help others make it to that day. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do a miracle in our hearts. A miracle in our hearts to, to order our lives 
like this. Thank you so much for these brothers and sisters. I thank you for giving them to me, to my family, and all of us to each other. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together again, so please stand with us. Drop a single anchor, we're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. The promised land is calling, we're almost home. And not a tear shall fall there, we're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore, I'll praise the Lord, we're almost journeys out together we're almost home unto that great forever we're almost home what song anew we'll sing around the happy throne come faint of heart we're almost home almost home almost home we're almost home so press on toward that blessed shore oh praise the lord we're almost home this life is just a vapor we're almost 